The decision I was faced with was very simply whether or not I chose to continue interacting with my mother. Everybody I spoke with was of the opinion that this was not a decision you could make. This was not an available decision. It took me decades to make the decision because I didn't know it was a possibility. Welcome back to the Figuring It Out podcast, where we share conversations on life's tough decisions and how we make them. I'm your host, Lindsay Strauss, and together we're here to explore the choices that make life worth living. Today we're talking about family. But even more than that, we're talking about all of the relationships in our life that we feel like we're meant to keep, even when they don't serve us in a healthy way anymore. That's why I wanted to speak with Joachim Brox. Joachim has a truly amazing perspective, and I can listen to him talk for hours. He's led a pretty incredible life, having had a successful career as a composer and an entrepreneur. Joachim has co-founded and run several companies while helping people live the life that they want. And there's few people that I would trust more with that than Joachim, as he's someone that I look to as an example for designing life exactly as you'd like it to be. This is my conversation with Joachim. You know, like I was mentioning before, we're chatting about decisions and the good and the bad and the ugly. And there's a lot I want to talk with you about today. But to start, if you can maybe just share what was the decision that you were faced with and why you wanted to share it openly today. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, The decision I was faced with was very simply whether or not I chose to continue interacting with my mother. I think it's a taboo subject. I think one of the biggest problems that I've faced while making that decision is that everybody I spoke with was of the opinion that this was not a decision you could make. This was not an available decision. It's like, there's no question. You have to be in touch with your mother. There is no way around this. And so from that perspective, it took me decades to make the decision because I didn't know it was a possibility. So my purpose with you here today is to give other people permission to think about, like, hey, this is a decision. This is the power that you have. And if you feel it's necessary, then you can use it. Mm. And so for you, where does the story begin? You know, that's a really tough question. And I've been thinking about this a lot, obviously. There is this tendency to look back at things through the lens of the perspective perspective I had at the time. So obviously when I was young, I didn't have the tools or insights that I have now. So my perception of that reality was very different than it would have been now. And so thinking back, those memories are perhaps more rosy than, than I would describe them now if I saw someone in those circumstances. So one of the challenges that I have is to look back at my past, look back at the memories I have, look back at what I think happened, and then kind of reinterpret that in terms of my current insights around boundaries and healthy relationships and all that kind of stuff. So I think, to make it short, because this is obviously a very long story, growing up, for me, felt like I was not in a safe space. There was nobody who I could trust. The people around me 
were always gaslighting me or changing the perspective of what it is that they did to fit their desires. And so as a child, that confused the hell out of me. And I became someone who was extremely focused on what people around me needed as a means of survival. Just to not have people be stressed or not shout or not be annoying. If I could anticipate their needs, if I could read their needs in the moment, then that meant that I could create some kind of a safety for myself. So I became extremely good at pleasing others, specifically my mother, because I grew up, uh, my father left us when I was four, I have one brother, so we grew up with my mother and then her mother for a while. And my mother was my primary caretaker, and I very quickly ended up in a position where I became her caretaker. So what they call parentification in psychology, my mother, well, I don't want to say too much about my mother, but I guess she's very traumatized in her own way. Uh, she was never able to work through that trauma. So being alone, not having a husband, not having had a father, she very much created connections around her that were about taking what she needed. And so I became a primary caretaker of my mother early on. I assisted her. I was always the one who helped her through her emotions. When she had something to share, I, I held space for her. I, you know, I was there for her, but never the other way around. So I kind of felt, I guess in retrospect, what it felt like was that I didn't have a parent. And of course my father was absent as well. He was just somewhere else. So that was the basic situation. That created lots of feeling of loneliness, um, anxieties around abandonment, very codependent kind of relationships, a very fucked up view on what love was. Um, and yeah, that's so that's kind of like the, the basic story of where this came from. Yeah, you have to become in a survival mode as you, you know, grow old. Is that something that you had any recognition of, you know, from earlier in life, or is this something that you gain consciousness of later as you started to do the work and to understand what happened? Later, for sure. I had no idea what was going on. This was just my normal, right? I had nothing to compare it with. And well, that's also a symptom of what I was going through. Um, it's quite common that narcissistic people control other connections of the people around them. So I grew up in a very, very restricted um, social environment. I, I didn't really have any friends. We didn't really have any people coming over. I was never allowed to go anywhere. So I didn't have other models of how people interacted with people. My only model was me, my brother and my mother at home. And that was a very toxic situation, but I had no clue. This was just my normal. And obviously my body was constantly activated. My nervous system was constantly in overdrive. But that was just what life was like. <laughs> so it's only much later that I realized, wait, that was not the normal behavior of my body and, and my mind. This is something I have to now discover for myself. Was there a moment in time or a, a, a trigger maybe of when you realized there was something you wanted to change? Yes, there was. I remember a very specific instance of a communication I received from my mother. Uh, I was abroad, I think I was in Italy, uh, 
probably on tour while singing. And I, I felt great. <laughs> you know, I was in a great place. I was with people I liked. I was doing great stuff. And I got an email from my mother that I read on my phone. And that immediately changed everything. I felt horrible. I felt so much tension. I felt nauseous. I felt like, oh, this is, this is terrible. I, I feel like I'm a bad person now. So much shame, so much guilt, you know, all these things. And not immediately in that moment, but like a couple of hours later, I, I just figured out something like, wait a second. Before receiving that communication from my mother, I was fine. I was living a good life. I felt good in myself. And then with that communication of my mother, suddenly I feel horrible. Why is that? And now that I think about that, that has actually been a quite consistent pattern in my life. You know, the more I take space from my mother, the more I'm able to build my own life for myself, the more I feel good. And then every time my mother pulls me back in or I try to, to get closer to my mother, because obviously that's a desire I have from ever since I was a small child, this like connection with a mother. So I tried to do this over and over throughout my life. But every time I tried that, or every time she reached out, it just turned to shit and I felt horrible. And that's when I decided, like, okay, maybe something needs to change here. And at that time, I had no idea that it was possible to really take distance from my mother. But that was, like, when I started researching possibilities. That's when I started thinking about, hey, maybe I should go to therapy. Maybe I should pursue meditation and so on. And did you have ideas in your mind or comparisons of what that connection, what that ideal mother-son relationship was meant to look like? No, honestly, no. <laughs> I, I mean, obviously you sometimes see the people around you interacting with their parents. Mm. And from my perspective, I don't know if this is true, but it, it feels to me as if a lot of people in the area where I grew up in Flanders in Belgium, most people seem to have quite toxic relationships with their parents. Mm. Is that a general thing? Is that a universal thing? I don't know. Uh, I know that, you know, parent relationships are complicated so maybe that's the case but I never really saw anyone who modeled a type of relating between you know parents and sons or daughters that I felt like oh wow this is this is beautiful or healthy I I never really saw that yeah, I think in most families around the world, we all have that uh, uh, similar interactions with our family where there's it's rarely fully healthy. And I think it's rare that we also fully take the time to look in and evaluate what is a family meant to be. There's a lot of as assumptions. And so for you in Belgium, you know, when you say you looked around and most families had some kind of toxic quality to it, why is it that? you think we're not, we're not questioning. Why is it that we're not actually questioning? What does it mean to have healthy relationship with our family? That's a great question. Yeah. i I believe it has a lot to do with just not having the examples mm. and most of our culture, if you look at, you know, literature, movies, songs, most of the drama that drives narratives is around these kind of unhealthy relationships hmm. and so it it seems as if maybe even early on in life we almost strive for the toxicity it's hmm. like we we model what love or what a relationship looks like from this 
drama series that we like or from this song that we heard that we love. And it's usually quite toxic. And then we almost aspire to that, this, this idea of like, you know, I can't live without you. This, this concept, which is extremely codependent, not healthy at all. That seems to be like the, the desire almost at least in me, you know, and also in the people that I perceive around me. So I think there's that, the, the lack of healthy examples of what it could look like. And then the other part of that, I think, is that we collectively kind of live in a an environment where people are generally afraid to examine the status quo or their own shadows or fears. Mm. It's like, that's just not something we do. It's like, let, let's not look at the things that are bad. <laughs> like, yeah, sure, some things are good, some things are bad, but let's not look. Let's just focus on what's right. And I think that's not a very healthy or very helpful uh, method of approaching life. But yeah, so it took me a very, very long time to decide to do something else for myself. That's so interesting. I, I think I've never really thought about it that way, but that makes a lot of sense because you almost get addicted to the drama and the way things are and you don't, you don't question it. What did you need to have in place in order to make that change? Well, I went through different phases, obviously. I think the first phase was something like, I'm going to heal myself in order to make that relationship possible, which meant that I started going to therapy and working with a therapist, which was a very, frustrating process for sure with my first therapist at least who was a belgian guy you know in the place where i lived at the time and i very quickly understood that that was not going to bring me where i wanted to be the even the the psychologist the way he talked about how to reconnect with my mother or how to heal myself was like this does not resonate with me at all i remember him telling me something like you seem to be having a good life. What's the problem exactly? I'm like, well, <laughs> the Yikes. problem is that, you know, there's a lot of tension in me, a lot of unprocessed emotions. And then I have this really weird relationship with my mother that I would like to change. I would like to have a different relationship with my mother. And then in that process, he basically said something like, you're looking at things um, from, from a wrong perspective. The only thing you need to do is just call your mother once a week for 15 minutes, listen to her speak, and then say, okay, I got to go now. <laughs> and I'm like what the fuck? Did my therapist just really advise me to just lie to my mother and just like pretend as if nothing's going on? I'm like, no, this does not seem the right way for me. So that's when I discovered that even going to therapy requires work in the sense that you need to find a therapist who you believe has a good approach for you. And then the end of that period would be when I had healed myself significantly and then I noticed that still the relationship with my mother would not improve. More like the opposite, to be honest, because the more I was able to express my boundaries and the more I was able to communicate truthfully about what was going on for me, the more vicious the reaction of my mother seemed to become. So we were kind of locked in a pattern, I think, where she was used to just having control over me using fear, uh, using shame, using guilt. And I reacted to that very well, giving her what she needed. The moment that I started setting boundaries, she freaked out. She was like, what is this? This person is changing the agreements we have or something like that, subconsciously, obviously. So she became a lot more aggressive somehow. So that made it worse. 
And that's when I entered the second phase, when I then started working with a different therapist, an American therapist, which I think is meaningful because the approach of American culture to therapy and to relationships is definitely different than Europeans. And that's when this American therapist, for the first time, offered me the idea, like, hey, you don't have to relate to your mother. Mm. And that, to me, at the time, sounded so strange. I was like, what? What are you saying? And so in that second phase, then it took me a very long time to then act upon that, to like get the courage. And I went back and forth. There were many iterations of this. And I was like, maybe I'm not convinced. Or I had a voice inside of myself shaming me for like, why would you even want to do that? And so on and so on. So I kept trying, I kept trying. And it's only at the end of that where I, where I really saw the reactions of my mother were just getting worse and worse that I finally was able to decide, okay, I'm going to try, and this was an experiment, to step away from this. And I'm going to communicate that this is what I need now. And then, of course, I mean, there's a long process there in which my mother didn't honor my boundaries at all. She kept contacting me in all possible ways, and I had to block her, you know, on my phone, email, and so on. Um, mm. That was very hard. And so, yeah, those are the phases of how I came to actually do it uh, not just deciding, but actually do it as well. Did you bring others into that decision? Was this something that existed between you and your mother or, you know, who else was involved in that process? Did people know in your family or your friends that this was something that you were deciding to do? I had some friends at the time with whom I was having conversations about this, but all of them always went back to the but it's your mother line, mm. you know, so that wasn't very helpful. But then after having made the decision, I communicated about this to the people who were the closest to me, um, including my father, for example. And all of that was very hard, but I, I thought it was a necessary step to make it real for myself. Like, look, this is what I've decided. I am committed to this and I'm going to externalize that. I'm going to actually tell the world that this is what I'm doing. And I guess what we're doing now is a very extreme version of that. Like I'm literally telling the world, hey, this is what I did. When a lot of people think about these decisions, it's kind of black and white. It's either, well, she's their mother. You need to have this relationship with her and people will project and have this um, kind of view of what a, a, a mother-child um, relationship is meant to be, or it's not. There's no relationship at all and it needs to be black and white. But there's a lot of gray, you know, like, so throughout this process, what was coming up for you? What was that, that like, you know, deciding what the terms of agreement would be and what that, the terms of that relationship would look like? Yeah, I, I tried a lot of the gray. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to be very clear about what I wanted from her, what I needed from her, what I would accept, what I would not accept and so on. And none of that ever mattered to her in yeah, just it just didn't work. My mother never honored any of my boundaries. And I remember reading some, and I don't remember where I read this, but I remember reading somewhere, it might have been in a, in a Brene Brown book, that if you set boundaries with people and then continuously they transgress your boundaries and you don't attach any consequences to that, then basically you don't have boundaries. Mm. And so after going through that period of trying all the gray, 
and having clear boundaries and then seeing that my mother did not honor any of my boundaries, there was only one thing left to do. Like that had to have consequences. I had to have this clear idea. Like, look, if, if you can't honor my boundaries, then I'm just going to remove myself from this relationship. Yeah. And yeah, that's what I did. How did that, how did that feel? Oh, can you, you know, walk oh. <laughs> the emotions? It's not easy. It's, you know, you can just say it of, yeah, I, I tried, yeah. but there's so much going on. Yeah. And of course this is a process of years, right? So this is yeah. not, I, I mean, I, I have a certain level of peace and acceptance with it now that is still not hundred percent complete. I have to admit there are still voices in my head, you know, thinking about, Oh, what would it look like if I got back in touch? Um, maybe she has changed maybe because I am more mature now, maybe I could do it a different way. You know, I still have these voices all the time, but throughout the years, obviously I've gone through a, the whole, <laughs> the whole book of emotions. Basically I've, I've felt so much relief and then feeling ashamed of fearing relief, mm. uh, you know, feeling guilty for what I'd done, um, feeling angry for the necessity to do this, like not really wanting to do it, but then not seeing any other road, not seeing another path, not having another choice in some way, and being frustrated like crazy, um, and then of course being incredibly, incredibly sad mm. for a very, very long time. And I the funny thing is that that sadness had actually always been in me. And that's something that I'm thinking a lot about recently is that I think in many ways, when we are going through these kind of non-healthy relationships, we are fooling ourselves. I think there's a part of us that always knows this is not okay. And so what I discovered is this very deep sadness and this knowing that this is not okay from when I was a kid, basically. And I had always ignored that part. And so all that sadness then obviously manifested itself. Um, and I also think that for me, a big part of my professional development, I used to be a composer and a singer, so I chose to be a musician. And in retrospect, I think that a lot of that was just about expressing my pain, expressing my sadness, and finding a space and a place for myself where I could express myself safely. Mm. So it, that impacted my life in a, in a huge way, obviously. No, I, I think it's important what you mentioned around, you know, the duality of the relief and sadness and seeing what stays with us, because there's this misconception of, you know, when you decide to move on, when you decide to move forward, to improve yourself, that that is all a good thing. And it is a good thing, but there's always grief. There's always grief and sadness that you're going to have. And um, I don't think as a society, we know what to do with that. You know, this, this duality of emotion is just, it's difficult. And to sit with it and to know that it's okay is, I know it's foreign to me, is, you know, I've had a few relationships in my life actually where you've, I've had to make that decision for myself as well. And that idea of sadness made me feel, I think at least that, oh, maybe this was the wrong decision. Maybe I should go back. Uh, maybe I should, you know, um, explore a new route. Did I do everything I possibly could rather than just saying, clearly something's not right here. <laughs> maybe I can just sit with this a little bit more. 
And I think that finality question is something that I think about a lot as well. So when you, you know, reflect on where things are today, is there a finality in your decision or is this something that you're constantly exploring of what do relationships mean to me and how you want to manage them in your life? I think I've come to the point where I'm quite clear the kind of relationships I want to have in my life. Mm. And obviously for me, as you no doubt know from my podcast, what it has come down to is the relationship I have with myself. Relating to myself is the core practice that has allowed me to understand how I want to relate to others. Mm. And the more I become kind and compassionate to myself, the more I desire, but also can accept kindness and compassion from others, which was something that was very, very hard, if not impossible for me, uh, not that long ago. People being kind to me, being compassionate, holding space for me, that would all make me extremely uncomfortable because I wasn't able to do that for myself, yeah. right? And now that I have developed those skills and those practices, yes, I have a very clear idea of the kind of relationships I want. But I have to admit there is still a part of me that somewhere deep down thinks like, what if? You know, what would it look like if I still tried to have a relationship with my mother. And I think this is something related to what you just mentioned, the, the grief. And my American therapist warned me about that. She said something like, you know, there's different stages to grief. There's the grief about making the decision, the grief about like, you know, feeling this loss in the moment. But then most probably there will be a much bigger grief that is about understanding or acknowledging that maybe you've never had a mother. Mm. and that is something that I sometimes feel is still driving that little voice inside of myself like you know I still desire somehow to have a mother mm -hmm. in some way and of course I project that onto this physical person who is biologically my mother fully knowing that there is well almost zero chance that she can be that for me and that's okay That's also not her responsibility anymore because I am a grown man, right? I don't need a mother. But there's that voice inside of me that kind of has a difficult time believing and dealing with the fact that I've never really had that, never had, really had experienced that safe haven with a space where I could express myself, could be heard, could be loved for who I am without judgment and all those kind of things. So... That's something I'm continuously working on. And I don't believe this will ever go away. I think this is also a crucial insight. I think there is no chance for me to achieve some kind of nirvana where I am perpetually at ease with my situation. I think I will always have these waves of grief and regret and doubt. And that's okay, because I know that those don't define me and I don't let those make choices for me. I act intentionally from the way that I now relate to myself with kindness and compassion. That's how I want to show up in the world. Those are the kind of relationships that I'm building now. And that's already here. I have those relationships, right? And those are beautiful. And I sometimes still have a hard time believing that's possible or that I deserve them. But then I do the work, I sit with myself, and then, yeah, that always passes. No, thank you for sharing that. I I think it is so important that 
you can get to that space where you, you talk about relating to yourself and having confidence and trust in what you need. And these are the moments when you'll have peace with the decision. But there's inevitably going to be these moments where the doubt comes up more. You know, I even find for myself of conversations with with friends and they talk about their relationships with maybe their partner or whatever it is. And, you know, can be more triggering moments for myself um, because then you start to wonder, hmm, maybe I could try again. So for you, what are these moments when the doubt comes up more and, and what do you do in those moments? Mm. Great question. Thank you. Um, I think there's two instances when these doubts come into my mind. One of them has nothing to do with other people. It's just when my subconscious kind of activates that part. And I don't know why that is. So that happens a lot in dreams. I dream a lot about my mother. I dream a lot specifically about situations in which I'm unable to hold my boundaries with my mother. That's something that comes up a lot. And then I wake up with a sense of doubt. I wake up with this kind of like icky feeling of like, like what's happening here? Am I making the right decisions? The other um, instance in which this happens is when people directly question my decisions. When people, when they hear about the situation with my mother, they go like, that's not right, or that's not kind, or they have a judgment about like, oh, you know, I thought you were like all about kindness and compassion, but that's not very kind or compassionate. And then they challenge my decision from their story, obviously, from, from their perspective, without knowing any of the details of how I feel or what I've actually gone through. And in those moments as well, I still feel it's difficult to fully hold my own space and hold myself in, in my truth. And I, I get triggered still a bit by that, but that happens very rarely, to be honest. Do you see that, that, you know, the way that you've approached this decision and it's something where culturally it's, it's against the grain. Like, you, you know, we talked about before, it's, it's still rare and it's still a taboo topic. Do you find that the work that you put in to make this decision for yourself has kind of impacted other decisions in your life and the way you approach the trust in how you decide? A hundred percent, yes. And there's several layers to that. I think one of the most important ones is that I think indeed, as I mentioned earlier, culturally, uh, it seems we're not very comfortable looking at maybe what's not optimal in our lives. And a lot of the people I used to hang out with uh, in Belgium seem to believe that life is suffering or, you know, work necessarily feels bad or stuff like that. There's all these kind of assumptions or limiting beliefs that people have about what life looks like. So, yeah, sure, I have to have a job. It sucks. I hate it. I feel terrible. I can't sleep at night because of stress. But hey, what can you do? That's just how life is. And that's terrifying. And so obviously when when you are able to tap into perhaps the most difficult decision when it comes to improving your life, removing yourself from a parent or a caretaker, then all these other decisions obviously come into play as well. They're like, oh, wait a second. If I can change this about my life, what else can I change? What is actually possible? And why on earth did I used to think that just being happy and fulfilled was not possible? Why did I think that suffering was the only way? And so obviously now I have been rewriting the rules of my life uh, since well, since forever, but especially since that decision. And now I've come to a place where I have changed everything. 
I have not only changed the kind of relationships I have with my family, I have changed the way of relationships I have with my friends, with my lovers, with my work, with the kind of activities I want to have every day, with my environment. Everything has changed. Everything has changed because of the simple question, how do I want these things to be? If there were no external limitations, what would be my ideal vision of what my life would look like every day? And then from there, making small changes along the way and coming to a place now where my life is fucking awesome. <laughs> In all honesty, like, I have an amazing life and I have a beautiful relationship with almost all the parts of my life and almost all the parts of myself. And that is such an incredible place to be. And I think it would have been absolutely impossible for me to get anywhere near this place had I not taken that one decision of removing myself from the relationship with my mother. That's really powerful. Because yeah, you were a musician and then you completely changed into entrepreneurship. Mm. What do you feel like this, um, you know, this trust in yourself and this trust in um, what happiness is to you? How did that kind of relate in this other area of your life? Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I always assumed that the ideal goal was to live your passion. Mm -hmm. My passion was music. I lived for music. My whole life was music. So I chose to be a musician and I loved that life in many ways because I was so attached to the subject. Right. But then the really interesting part is when you start researching that, like the word passion actually comes from suffering. It's like the passion of Christ. You know, that's in a way, passion is suffering for something you value. And I had to admit that in my life as a musician, in many ways, I was suffering. I financially was not in a good place because there is never enough money in culture. So musicians are always paid terribly. And that creates problems in my life, right? I always felt like a beggar, basically, always at the lowest end of the scale. And people who then control the money or the places or, you know, the people in power have play with me like I felt like a puppet like uh, along the whims of these people and that just didn't feel like an empowered place to me it didn't feel like a place where I could feel like I'm proud of my life I'm proud of myself I I have agency and I decided what I do and when I do it so I decided to move away from that life even though music and still is my my love I could say right so I came to entrepreneurship not because I thought like oh I have this vision of or dream of wanting to be an entrepreneur. Not at all. Quite the opposite. I came out of a situation in which entrepreneurship was very much looked down upon. Uh, it was something, you know, that you should stay away from. But for me, entrepreneurship was the answer to the question, what can I do that allows me to have as much agency as possible and to be as much in my own power as possible? What can I do in the world that creates value so that I can survive and sustain myself while having as much decisions as possible in my power without other people deciding for me? And the answer to that was very clearly entrepreneurship. And yeah, I'm still incredibly happy I made that choice. It's funny, the, the language that you use describing that, that journey for yourself is very similar to the language that you use describing this kind of evolution in your relationship with with your mother and yet one's taboo and one is something that we're all talking about something that we all feel comfortable 
I think having this conversation about increasingly, at least, is do you follow your passion? Do you do something that allows you to have a livelihood? Career is something we, we all think about. And yet family is something we all have as well. But that still stays in this taboo area when the emotions are the same. This question of, am, do I have my own power, my own agency, or am I needing others? Do I feel like I'm suffering? Yeah, but one one seems like we still just don't want to touch as a society. Hmm. Well, I would say that's that's more like a recent development that I see. Because mm. I would say like in my 20s, when I was dealing with these things for the first time, I had no people around me that thought about career in that way. Everybody was still like, you know, I'm going to study something, I'll, I'll get a good degree, and then I'll hopefully find a job. And I'll be at, at the mercy of the job market. And that was where, where I was, that was where all my friends were. And I was already the outsider because I chose to be an artist in some way, you know. But the result was pretty much the same. Um, I still had to look for jobs all the time. I was dependent on other people to give me work. So this idea of being able to forge your own path, being able to be an entrepreneur, to do your own thing, to start something up, I feel is something that has definitely exponentially grown in the past 15, 20 years. Obviously, with the new tools we have created for that, the internet and all these things have made it so much easier for people to actually start a business and even scale a business. And of course, my hope is that that evolution will inspire people to think about their lives in that way, also in other domains. Like maybe they'll take the other the other approach where they first will make those decisions to stand in their power and have agency over their lives. Yeah, absolutely. I was researching um, a bit more before our conversation and just, you know, being curious around what is the the current state of family in, in the world. And in the U.S., um, one in four Americans are estranged from a family member. In the U.K., it's one in five. So in a lot of Western nations, at least, where individualism is common, that I think is starting to spill over into these other spaces that maybe have been taboo. And I think what you said at the beginning of our conversation really stands out to me of we need better examples. What would you want others to kind of um, see or learn from that? I think what's really important for me is to see the limits of individualism. Individualism is a tool that has allowed me to deliver myself from suffering, right? So I was in a situation that was not serving me. I, I was in pain. I was able to get out of that through examining my needs as an individual. But then, of course, after I've done that, what becomes super important to me is community, is connection, is what I guess you could call, if you wanted to, chosen family. Like, who are the people that I want to relate to and that I want to show up for, that I want to create bonds with that are about presence and care and unconditional love and all these things that I think traditionally, I guess those are values that we associate with family, but that I haven't seen in families much, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And so what I hope that this growing individualism will allow is that more and more of us will come to this place where we create those bonds intentionally, where we choose the people to whom we show up in unconditional love and with compassion and with kindness and so on. And 
I would, of course, also hope that this becomes more of a, a lens through which to see the world, mm. where you go like, okay, most of the drama around human relationships, most of the things that I thought about people in terms of like, these people are bad or these people are wrong, these people are aggressive, like all these things, all these concepts stem from my own trauma, from my own ways of not getting my needs met within my core family. Once I have healed that, I can look at the world differently and I can see things from a much more compassionate perspective where now when I see people who are what I used to think wrong or violent or whatever negative um, value, now I think like, oh, I can see these people's suffering. Mm -hmm. I can see their pain and I can see how they act out. I can see how that makes them behave in ways that is harmful for themselves and the world around them, but I don't necessarily perceive them anymore as like bad people, <laughs> right? And I think that's a really important shift that I would not have been able to go through without again first finding that place of safety and peace within myself. And that is definitely my hope that if the world evolves more into that way, and I think it is evolving into that way because more and more people I feel are speaking about boundaries specifically healthy relationships um, a way to approach their desires and, and expressing their truths and stuff like that and so my hope is that we come to a place that is not just about individuals that is not just about family that is not just about community but that it is about a more compassionate vision of what it means to be human mm. and perhaps even a helpful stance towards people who currently are in pain and acting in ways that are harmful. One of the ways that you mentioned coming to this, I guess this perspective and evolving your lens on this is through therapy. Are there any other kind of resources or questions that really helped you along the way that you think others can benefit from? Yeah, I think the, the most important thing to say there is that I believe everyone's path is different. I don't think there are cookie cutter tools that work for everyone. Therapy, obviously, like, but that's such a broad word. It doesn't really almost mean anything because yeah. it's so individual. There's so many different strains of therapy. And I think there are as many different kinds of therapy as there are therapists out there. Working with a mental health professional who has received training in assisting people exploring their own issues is great in general. But then mm -hmm. again, you have to do the work to find someone who suits your particular approach to that. So that's one thing. Um, one other thing that has tremendously helped me personally is meditation. And um, most of that was about gaining awareness of what was actually happening in me. And I remember I procrastinated meditating for a very long time, going in and out of it, like using all the apps, you know, Headspace and all that kind of stuff. I very much recommend that. I think it's a great way to start. But it never got me anywhere. And it's only when I decided, like, okay, I will be a bit more serious about this, I will go to a meditation retreat and I will do nothing but meditation for a week with, you know, a facilitator who is explaining about meditation and so on and so on. And in that retreat, I remember having these incredibly strong emotions coming up, both in my dreams and during the day, mm -hmm. of stuff that I had no idea was locked in myself. So meditation for me was a gateway to accessing trauma in my body and mind, basically. 
So that's something I would definitely recommend. But again, it's like, you know, it's not from sitting on a cushion five minutes every day in your home that this is going to happen. You need to be a bit more serious about it. And then lastly, I would say I have developed a set of simple rituals that I do with myself. Um, I have a gratitude ritual. I have a forgiveness ritual. I have a letting go ritual. I have a shadow work ritual. All the small things that I can just do whenever I feel the need. So whenever I feel there's something stuck in myself, I'm like, okay, I'm going to use my letting go ritual. And then that always helps Whenever I feel like there's a tension around someone who has said something and done something, I do my forgiveness ritual and that helps. And sometimes I even do those rituals without a direct need, just as kind of like upkeep. Mm. Um, and yeah, those are all tools that really have helped me tremendously in navigating this journey. Amazing. You know, if you're to reflect back and you've talked a lot about, you know, how this decision to change your relationship with your mom has helped you trust yourself more, how it's helped you relate to yourself in a different way. What would you say are, you know, the biggest ways that it's impacted your relationship with others in your life? I think the, the biggest change for me is just this very simple idea that I can be in relationships that feel good. Mm. And that it's not because they feel simple and easy that there is no love. That's something that kind of like was stuck in me in the past. I felt love probably meant that there's something difficult, that there's tension, that there's that we're going to like argue and people are going to do things that I don't like. And then, I, oof, oof. But now I have the feeling that in really loving relationships, everything feels like there's no drama. Mm. There, there's, there's no passion even, I would say. Nor do I want it. I'm, I'm very happy with relationships that are just nourishing and beautiful. And of course, that doesn't mean that there are no disagreements or that there are no differences of opinion or differences of desires. All these things still exist. But the way I choose to show up to those problems, if you want to call that, is just with kindness and compassion. <laughs> Conversations now feel like beautiful, nourishing tools instead of like horrible, painful moments that then kind of like led to a release of tension afterwards. And like, and I guess that's what a lot of people still, still desire when they think about love relationships it's this idea of like drama then leading to resolution which creates attachment and that's something they desire and so now what i'm practicing is relationships that are unconditionally loving that are filled with kindness and compassion and that don't necessarily feel like something i need in order to survive mm. and yeah that's just mind-blowing and i strongly believe these days that you can't really change people. Mm -hmm. You can't really even help people. The only thing I strive to do is share what is real for me, share my path, and then hope that it inspires others, like you just said, to gain their own insights, to make their own choices, and to make things better for, them, for themselves. For people that are going through this process right now, people are maybe are in toxic relationships, what advice or guidance would you would you share for them oh dear yeah i was afraid this question would come <laughs> i 
I think that the thing that matters most, that is also the most difficult, is to build trust with yourself. Mm. Trust yourself. Trust what you feel. Trust what is real for you. Trust your truth. And it's incredibly hard, right? Because most people in toxic relationships will probably be there exactly because they don't trust themselves. And they have people around them who kind of give them permission to be or give them their truth in a way that they think then feels good because it's safe. But yeah, you have to learn to trust yourself. And I think one of the most meaningful practices of doing that is to think about commitments and agreements with yourself. What are the smallest possible things I can commit to that I know I will commit to? And every time you commit to something that you cannot execute, you decrease trust in yourself. And this is not even about like, you know, acting to the world with integrity, you know, making other people trust you. No, it's just about yourself. And this is so underrated, this idea of doing the things that you promise for yourself, mm. not for others, but just for seeing that you are a person who can honor their commitments and honor their agreements. That is so powerful. And so most people will start with that on a, on a way too difficult level. And then people will go like, oh, in the new year, I will eat healthily. You know, and obviously that's the kind of commitment that you can never keep. Nobody, does, nobody ever does that. And then you fail at that. Obviously, you set yourself up. You set yourself up for failure. But then, when you fail, you decrease trust in yourself. So don't do that. Just don't. Don't make those kind of commitments. Think more of something like, "Hmm, I feel a bit tired. I commit to taking some rest in the next 15 minutes." And then when you do that. Suddenly you feel like, wow, you know, I've made this commitment, I've honored this for myself, and it happened. That was Joachim Brox. I hope our conversation can inspire you to reflect on the relationships that you hold in your own life, and maybe even use some of these tools and techniques to help you decide what and who serves your happiness. If you enjoyed today's episode, please add your stars and reviews because it makes a huge difference in helping me share these messages with more people. If you'd like to share this episode or others, you can click on the share button in your podcast app or visit us on Instagram at figuringitout.show. If you'd like to hear more from Joachim, you can also listen to his podcast, Relating to Self, by heading to relatingtoself.com. Next week, we're back with Eleanor Salmon, a UN researcher who quit her job studying happiness to practice it for herself using dance. For everyone who's questioning their career and pathways to happiness, you won't want to miss this.